Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our group learning program that we've been doing now for about three months or so, and we've got another two months remaining. So if you've been with us during that time, that's wonderful that you've been learning and progressing all the way through to this point. And if you're just joining us today for the first time, this is a wonderful place to start. And you can always repeat and go back through the program again, even though we're towards the end of the program right now. Because on Sundays, we use a chapter of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, as our guide to explore teachings each week on Sunday. So the entire week, this week, we're exploring chapter 16, which is craving is the problem, what is the solution? And students read this book throughout the week in order to gain insight from this book and ask questions in our classes and in our Facebook group and through having personal discussions with me through video or audio or text chat. So on Sunday, that's what we did is we talked about chapter 16, craving is the problem and what is the solution. And then on Wednesdays, we take time to do breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or I teach Buddhist chanting as part of our Wednesday sessions. And then on Saturdays, Right now we're doing meditation and then starting on January 9th, we're going to be following that up with studying in our Pali Canon and English study group, which is essentially using the words of the Buddha from these books, which are extractions of the Pali Canon, which are the most complete the largest collection of Gautama Buddha's teachings that we have. So students are kind of going to be studying that program as well. If you haven't yet gone through the group learning program, you may choose to do that first or do that in parallel to this other program we're going to be starting on Saturdays. But either way, you're welcome to join on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday for a combination of talks about the Buddhist teachings and meditation, which we do as well and kind of integrate into these live online classes. We have streaming out to Facebook, to YouTube, to Twitch and Periscope. We also have our interactive classroom that's up and running, and we record this for our podcast as well. So if for some reason you ever miss one of the live classes, you can always watch it back on one of the playbacks or listen to the podcast and be able to access the teachings that way. My goal here is to help guide you in understanding Gautama Buddha's teachings so that you can then practice his teachings and see the truth for yourself. Nothing in Gautama Buddha's teachings is based on belief. 
It's all based on you learning the teachings intellectually, reflecting on those teachings and practicing those teachings with guidance so that you can see the truth for yourself. And through discovering the truth, you then gain wisdom and the mind starts to awaken to this enlightened mental state where you start understanding these natural laws of existence and you're training the mind to actively become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy based on all the things that go around in the world because you can't change this natural world or these natural laws of existence that exist in the world. All you can do is learn them, see the truth, gain that wisdom, and now with that wisdom, the mind starts functioning in the world very differently than it did previously before you were on this path. So by learning this path and discovering these truths, gaining wisdom, the mind starts functioning more and more peacefully, more and more contently, and more and more with joy, where you can eliminate the discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, all of these discontent feelings can be eliminated from the mind through training the mind. And what we discussed in this chapter on Sunday, which is chapter 16, is we discussed what the central problem is in the mind that's causing these discontent feelings, which is craving, desire, attachment this mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind pulls in a certain direction and it wants something so badly. And if it gets that, then it's happy, it's excited, it's elated. But that's still discontentedness because that happiness, excitement, elation is only temporary. Happiness is not permanent. Therefore, if we allow the mind to have this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting and expecting certain things, then we may get that happiness for a temporary period of time, but it's almost like setting yourself up to fail because at some point that happiness is going to fade and it's going to wane and then the mind is going to move over to sadness or anger or frustration. And if you have this mental longing and the strong eagerness for things and the mind doesn't get what it wants, then that's where oftentimes immediately the sadness, the anger, frustration, annoyance comes in. So we discussed the problem very clearly on Sunday. And if you haven't seen that talk yet, you can go back to our YouTube channel or podcast or one of those sites and you can see the talk that we actually gave. And today what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be doing the solution aspect of what the Buddha talked about. Because in that talk, what we discussed is how the mind causes itself discontentedness because it craves for things to be permanent. It has this mental longing with a strong eagerness where it wants a new car, it wants more money, it wants a new job, it wants a new set of shoes, it wants this, it wants that, and it just keeps lurching and lurching, or it craves permanence, for example, in a relationship. It craves for this relationship to be permanent, and the unenlightened mind holds on, and it's craving this permanence, essentially causing itself discontentedness. Well, the solution to all this, one of the primary things that we do to eliminate this tendency of the mind to hold on to thoughts and ideas and perceptions and go to the past and go to the future and have all these cravings and desires 
these attachments, these wants and expectations, expecting a certain outcome. The way that we train the mind to be in the middle, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is through breathing mindfulness meditation. This is the primary method of training that the Buddha prescribed in order to train the mind to let go. So what we're going to be doing in today's guided meditation is we're going to be focused on the breath and only the breath. We're going to train the mind to let go of the past and let go of the future and let go of these thoughts and ideas and perceptions and just focus only on the breath. And by doing this over multiple weeks and months and years, the mind will then be very easily able to just let go of things. So when that car pulls in front of you in traffic, rather than getting so angry because you crave that permanence about driving in a particular lane, you can just let it go. Or if somebody says something disparaging or unkind or impolite to you, you can train the mind to let that go. Or if you notice that your mind is pulling in a certain direction and it just wants something so badly, you can identify that for what that is, which is craving, desire, attachment. You can see that it leads to discontentedness and through training the mind more and more over multiple weeks, months, and years, then you're able to let it go because you've trained the mind. But right now, if you haven't really been on this path or you haven't been doing meditation in this particular way, then your mind is untrained, therefore it's uncontrolled. And this is the reason why you're experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, all of these discontent feelings, including boredom, loneliness, shyness, and all these other discontentedness that the unenlightened mind experiences. It's because the mind is currently untrained, therefore you can't control it. So what today is all about is about training the mind. And the way meditation works is in its accumulated benefit. You're not gonna instantly meditate and immediately get to enlightenment. This is one of the biggest myths about the Buddhist teachings that he sat down, he meditated, and he instantly attained enlightenment. When he talks in his teachings, he talks about this gradual path, this gradual progress of training the mind and gradually moving it closer and closer to enlightenment. So that's what we're going to be doing today is a meditation session. And then afterwards, we're going to take questions. So if while you're learning this meditation through the guidance that I share here with you, or while you're in meditation, if there's any questions that come up, you just save those for the end of our session and we'll discuss those then. Or if there's anything beyond meditation that you would like to discuss related to this path or developing this life practice, we can also discuss those as well. And the way that we do that is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your question into the comment section and we have Max as well as James moderating today and they'll see your question and then they'll be able to ask it during the class to make sure that your question gets asked. And if you're in Zoom, you have the added feature of electronically raising your hand where you can ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So we'll get to those at the end after we do our meditation. So I would like to just 
Welcome all of you to our guided meditation. I appreciate that you're here to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha and very pleased that I'm able to offer these online classes for you to learn and grow and progress on this path. So now I would like to just invite you to do some meditation together. Like I mentioned, we've got people all over the world that are going to be meditating together. So if you prefer to meditate in the seated position or lying position or standing position, you can take any of those three positions now and start to kind of get ready for the meditation that we're going to be doing together. If you would like to sit on the ground with a pillow under your rear to kind of get your rear up in the air and kind of lessen the angle on your hips, that could be one way that you do it. For me, I'm sitting in a chair, so I'm just going to make my lower body comfortable by placing my feet flat on the floor or crossing your feet. It's up to you. There's not just one way to put the body into a particular meditation position. So if you're sitting in a chair, you might place your feet flat on the floor or have them lightly crossed at the ankles. If you're sitting on the floor, you might put your pillows under your rear to kind of get the, your rear up and kind of angle your knees downward towards the floor, just with a lightly crossing the legs, not too tight, because if you make them real tight, then the circulation is going to be inhibited and it'll be hard for you to continue to meditate because the circulation will be inhibited. Once you've got your lower body in a comfortable position, the next thing is to focus on your upper body. Here, your spine should be elongated with your muscles engaged. And if you can use your own muscles and engage your muscles, this is wonderful because it will maintain the attentiveness in the mind. Because the mind will have a tendency to become too luxurious and too complacent. So if you maintain the erectness of your spine and engage your muscles to do that, then the mind will have a tendency to be more active. With your hands and your arms, there's lots of different options here. You can place your right hand over your left and put your thumbs together and then just place that in your lap if you like. This is the way the Buddha used to meditate. But if that doesn't work for you or if it doesn't feel comfortable, there's lots of other options. You can just place your palms on your thighs or your knees. You can place your hands up in the air. You can place your arms on the armrest of a chair. There's not just one specific way to do this. It's all about helping the body to feel comfortable, but not luxurious. Okay, so get in that comfortable position with your lower body, with your upper body erect, and your hands and arms wherever you feel comfortable placing those. Then close your eyes and just start taking some nice breaths through the nose in through the nose and out through the nose. You don't need to have any particular type of breath. You don't need to force or control the breath. You just need a nice natural breath in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Wherever you feel that you need a breath to come in or out, it's totally up to you. This is your own independent journey. We're meditating as a group, 
but we recognize this is an independent journey and everyone's going to find their own way with guidance and find what works best for them. So you breathe in and out through the nose as you feel is best for you. The breath is the present moment. So what you'd like to do is focus the mind on the breath. The sound of the breath coming in the nose or the sensation of the air entering over the skin and into the nose. So just bring the mind's awareness to the breath. This is the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. For now, I'm just going to leave you right here, breathing in and breathing out. I'm going to do some chants that I've taught in the past. And students, you're welcome to join if you've learned these in the past. If you haven't learned these before, we have a class coming up in two weeks to learn these. And then I'll be back with some more guidance after the chanting. Arahang Samma Sammoto Mahakava Potang Mahakavanang Apivate Ami Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savaka Sankho Sankhang Namami Napmodhasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Iti piso mahakawa arahang sama samhoto 
comes to the mind, just cut it off or let it go and bring the mind to the breath, the present moment. If the mind goes to the past or the future, just let it go. Cut off those thoughts. The mind can be peaceful and content in the present moment, which is the breath. Breathing in and out. If there's any thoughts or ideas or perceptions that come to the mind, Just let them go. Focus on the breath, the present moment. If the mind wanders or has any thoughts or ideas, you haven't done anything wrong. No need to feel guilty or shameful. This is just what the unenlightened mind loves to do. It tries to take you on a journey. It tries to take you away from that present moment. But you're training the mind. You're trying to gain control over this. So wherever you notice the mind has gone to the past, the future, Thoughts, ideas, perceptions arise. Just cut it off. Let it go. Bring the mind to the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. There's no need to label the thoughts, no need to judge them. You haven't done anything wrong. 
This is just the mind trying to take you away from that present moment. And where you notice that, you cut it off, let it go, and bring the mind to the breath. This mind is going to want to hold on. It craves permanence while everything around you is impermanent. Whatever arises is going to cease to exist. So I'm not even interested in allowing the mind to hold on to my voice. So I'm going to be quiet so that you can just sit with the mind And as anything comes up, you just cut it off, let it go, and focus on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You have nowhere to go, nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to train the mind. Breathing in and out.
to just slowly ease your way out of meditation. So today we did breathing mindfulness meditation and training the mind to let go, not to be craving and desiring and having these attachments where the mind is longing for something with this strong eagerness. Because it's not the next shiny object that's going to make the mind peaceful. But that's what the mind thinks. The mind wants to chase and it wants to crave, it wants to pursue the next new shiny object, whatever that is, whether it's a relationship or a job or money, it just wants to constantly pursue and pursue and pursue, thinking that this external thing is gonna create some kind of internal contentedness. But it never works out that way. The mind may get happy or excited for a period of time, but then it always wears off. It's only training the mind to let go 
and pursue things with wisdom, pursue things out of good, wholesome choices, but not out of this constant longing with a strong eagerness that the mind just wants to pursue and pursue and pursue the next shiny object. So this is one of the primary solutions that Gautama Buddha prescribed, breathing mindfulness meditation done every day. And you'll normally need to build up to that, right? It's very rare that someone can just start a meditation practice and out of the gates meditate every day. And the Buddha meditated three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. And I suggest that if you're able to slowly build up to that, you know, use the morning or evening as maybe your first meditation each day, once a day, and then slowly build up where you're maybe meditating in the morning and the evening, and then slowly build that up where maybe you can put in that third one, which is the middle of the day. And if at the beginning you're just getting five or 10 minutes of meditation, that's okay. But what you'll notice is over time, you'll gradually be able to expand that more and more. I actually don't even time meditation because this mind that wants to pursue and wants to long and have this strong eagerness, you've got to eliminate all of that 100% in order to attain enlightenment. So if you set an alarm on your clock, for example, and the mind is in meditation, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? That's craving desire attachment. So it's best if you can eliminate that and you don't meditate with an alarm. But of course, if you're in the morning and you're headed out to work and you've only got 10 or 15 minutes, then go for it, you know, use that. But where you can, maybe in the evenings or on the weekends, if you don't need an alarm, then don't use it and just meditate either sitting, lying or standing and just go for whatever amount of time you feels good, whatever feels right, and then just stop. Because if you set this alarm, you're either going to fall short of that and then maybe feel guilty that you've done so, or you're going to be really deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefits, and the alarm's going to go off. And then you're going to be like, wow, if I would have just not set that alarm, I could have got so many more benefits. So it's better to not meditate with an alarm. It's just eliminate the alarm altogether if you can on most of your sessions so that you can train this mind to just be in meditation without any expectation, without anything that you're wanting or craving, desiring, or attached to, including an alarm. It's just sit in meditation and focus on the breath and only the breath. So I'd like to turn this over to our moderators and see if there's any questions that have come in either through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And for those of you guys in Zoom, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask directly, you can just raise your hand electronically and the moderators will be sure that you get called on so you can ask any questions that you have, either about meditation or about anything in this life practice about how to pursue this path and progress on this path towards enlightenment. Thank you, David. Our first question of the day comes from Zoom from Max. He would like to know, can we build wealth whilst practicing these teachings as long as we do it without craving? What are some things we might consider to build and use resources in a wholesome way? Yeah, sure. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. Being wealthy or having money is not a problem, 
The problem is, is that if we pursue it with craving, desire, attachment, where there's this mental longing with a strong eagerness, where the mind wants more and wants more and wants more, and we start assigning our satisfaction in life based on our account balance in our bank. So if we have a particular amount, then the mind feels like, okay, this is what I would like. But then the mind wants more and it wants more and it wants more. And then if your bank balance drops, then the mind becomes discontent. But it's also discontent when the bank balance is growing because it's attaching to this balance and thinking that this bank balance or this monetary wealth defines who I am as a person. So there's nothing inherently wrong with progressing and looking to acquire wealth. It's just that we can't attach our satisfaction or our peacefulness or our contentedness to that wealth. And that means that we can't pursue it with this insatiable thirst, this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and a strong eagerness. So someone might pursue monetary wealth as a goal or an objective or an interest and use those resources in order to help their own life and help other people's life. Because what happens when we pursue money out of craving, desire, attachment is we tend to become very selfish and we acquire this money or this wealth and we hold on to it and we become very selfish with it. So part of the other aspect of addressing this aspect of the mind of craving, desire, attachment, where the mind holds on to things, not only does the Buddha prescribe breathing mindfulness meditation, but he also prescribes generosity is sharing, giving and sharing our time, effort, energy, and resources so that we don't take on this selfish pursuit of acquiring things in our life just for our own selfish desires. So money can be helpful. It can be beneficial. There's lots of good things that can come from money. But if we attach our contentedness to our bank balance or we pursue it with this longing and strong eagerness, if it becomes this selfish pursuit that we just hold on to it ourselves, then that's where it leads to problems in the mind. So if you're going to progress and decide that you would like to have more money, then you wanna make sure that you pay attention to what the Buddha called right livelihood. What right livelihood is, is it's the fifth step of the Eightfold Path, which provides us guidance on if we do any of these livelihoods, it's going to cause harm in the world. So therefore harm is going to come to us. And as long as we're not doing any of these five wrong livelihoods, then we should experience good, wholesome results from the occupation that we choose. One of the things that he shared in these five livelihoods, I'll go through all five of them, is that we shouldn't sell weapons. If we sell guns and knives and spears and swords and things that inflict harm on people or animals, then that's going to cause harm to other beings. So therefore, harm's gonna come to us. And if you're familiar with any of the stories of the big families in America that are manufacturing guns and weapons, you can see that like the Remington family or the Smith and West family, there's members of those families that will tell you that they're plagued by the spirits of people who've been killed with their weapons and it causes them great mental anguish as part of that. So we need to make sure that we're not doing an occupation that sells weapons. Also, that we shouldn't sell poisons. 
So poisons that are meant to harm humans or harm animals, because once again, if we cause harm to other beings, that harm is going to come to us. The other one is that we shouldn't sell living beings, right? Like human trafficking or animals or things like this, because if we sell living beings, then we're going to cause harm to these living beings because we're attaching our livelihood, our sustaining of life on the life of somebody else. So like slaves or human trafficking or animals or beings like this. And you can look at that in today's world that this whole COVID-19 came about because of markets that were selling animals and there was this close proximity between humans and animals and in that market the virus jumped from the animals over to the human world and now the whole entire world is being impacted by this virus so the interesting thing about the buddhist teachings is he explained to us what we should and shouldn't do in terms of this natural law of gamma but because now it's been 2500 years since he taught we can actually see the harms he didn't describe that COVID would happen, but he described that if we made our livelihood around selling living beings, that it would cause harm in the world. Therefore, harm would come to us as a humanity, as humankind. He also talked about selling meat because in order to sell meat, there needs to be animals that are killed in order to sell this meat. So once again, you know, that's going to cause harm in the world. And you can see this in modern day research where it shows that human beings who ingest meat actually end up having more sickness and more illness. There's more inflammation in the body. There's more cancers. There's more illnesses in the human body based on ingesting meat. You can also see the truth for yourself in this without believing the teachings by eliminating meat slowly over time from your diet. And you'll see that by not ingesting meat, you're not going to have these toxins and drugs and hormones that get injected into the animals in your body. So therefore, the physical body and the mind becomes more healthy. So you can see that for yourself, that if you sell meat, it causes harm in the world. Therefore, harm is going to come to you. And then the fifth one that he talked about is he talked about selling substances that cause heedlessness. Heedlessness is lack of attention, lack of awareness, lack of awareness of mind or mindfulness. So if we sell alcohol or drugs, or even nowadays, a lot of people see that caffeine actually causes the mind to race and causes lack of attentiveness or awareness of mind. So if we sell drugs or alcohol or any kind of substances that cause heedlessness, this is causing harm to other beings. Therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. And once again, you can see this as truth, because if I stood on the street corner and sold drugs, then I would probably be robbed. I might get beaten up. I might get murdered. I'm probably going to get arrested over time. I'm always going to be fearful and kind of looking over my shoulder. There's all of these problems that come with these five livelihoods and is why the Buddha described that we shouldn't do any of these. But of course, it's guidance. It's up to us to choose if we would like to practice in this way. The Buddha never tried to fear anybody into learning and practicing his teachings. But through learning and practicing them, you can see the truth for yourself and your life will become more and more peaceful. So you can pursue wealth, you can pursue increased amounts of income, 
but don't do it out of this craving, desire, attachment, this longing, strong eagerness, which also oftentimes factors into the ego, which is what we're going to be talking about on Sunday. A lot of times, not only do we pursue money and wealth out of this longing, strong eagerness for wealth and certain material possessions, but oftentimes it's done out of ego having a higher salary or a higher bank account or having nicer possessions oftentimes bolsters the ego. And this can be problematic if the mind becomes very arrogant or prideful or comparing yourself to others and looking down on other beings or even looking up to other beings as well can become very harmful and dangerous to the mind. So you can pursue increased levels of income and then do wholesome things with that. And there's a multitude of wholesome things out there, Max, that people can think about that they could potentially do. The list is unlimited. As long as it's not within these five livelihoods, you'll be doing things that are wholesome and beneficial to the world. Thank you, Dan. We have a question now from Judah about meditation. She would like to know, is there a maximum amount of time that we should meditate in one day? There isn't a maximum or minimum amount of time. I suggest that the closer you get to 30 minutes and beyond, the better. But you shouldn't feel guilty or shameful if you are less than 30 minutes because I've done meditations that are five or 10 minutes and gotten a lot of benefit. And I've even done meditations sometimes where I thought I was gonna do a long meditation and within a minute or two, my son walks in and says, hey dad, I need you to take me to school. But that one minute, it was really wonderful. And then when I got back from taking him to school, I would go back into meditation and do meditation. So as long as you're attending to the needs of your life, you know, taking care of the body, taking care of all the other aspects of your life that you need to take care of, there isn't really a danger in meditating for five hours or 10 hours or something like this. I know one person who's a monk who's enlightened that he actually meditated for seven days straight without sleeping, without going to the bathroom, without eating, without drinking water. And he was in a cave and he just meditated for seven days straight. And I noticed that for him, he actually damaged his legs. And I don't know if it was that exact situation of meditating for seven days or whether it was just an accumulation of all the meditation that he's done in his whole life but he barely is able to walk. He has to have support on each side, somebody supporting him to walk. So as long as you're maintaining the physical health of the body and you're managing your life and all the other things that you need to take care of in your life, there's really no limit to the amount of time that you can meditate because the benefits are accumulative. It's like a bucket. And when you first start on this path, you have this empty bucket with no water And there's like holes in the bucket. And every time you're doing meditation, it's like the water is just dropping out of the bucket. And through learning and practicing all the other teachings, not just meditation, but the entire eightfold path that the Buddha taught, it's like repairing that bucket and making sure that the bucket doesn't have any holes in it. And as you're learning things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, you've got this nice solid bucket. And as you're meditating, you're scooping water into this bucket and you're gradually filling up this bucket. So if you can scoop one scoop or you can scoop 10 scoops in a day, 
you're still filling up this bucket gradually over time. And eventually, as you do this, the bucket just overflows with more and more water and you're no longer thirsty. You're still going to meditate. You're still going to always meditate. But I don't have to meditate now nearly as much as I used to in the past. In the past, I had to do a lot, a lot, a lot of meditation where now it's just a little bit here and there. You know, like there's some days where, you know, two or three sessions, I might meditate a total of about an hour or two hours over the course of those sessions. But there's some days where I might only meditate for 30, 45 minutes or an hour over those same number of sessions. So you have to decide for yourself what works best for you. But there is no amount of time that's too much. We have another question about meditation. It comes from Chris. Chris says, I'm just starting meditation and I only feel comfortable meditating when I'm home only, which is almost never given COVID. How can I change that? Or what would you recommend? So if you're only comfortable meditating at home, in order to progress on this path, you need to get to the point where the mind is comfortable meditating anywhere, anytime. But of course, it takes time to build up to that. So if your mind got used to meditating in the same place, same location, the same time, without any sound, and there's no people around you, if it got used to that, then the mind's going to hold on to that and it's going to grab onto that and it's going to want to crave that. And then if any little bit of sound or anybody comes into the picture, then the mind's going to become discontent because it's not getting what it wants, which is that perfect location, that perfect amount of time, that perfect silence or whatever. This perfection only exists in the mind and the mind keeps wanting to pursue this and it puts all these conditions in place that says, I can only meditate when these conditions are present. And this is kind of the way that the unenlightened mind hinders itself or sabotages it from actually making progress on this path. And what you've got to do is you've got to have more commitment than that or more willpower than that, where you say, you know what? Okay, you're not going to get this perfect conditions, you're just going to go meditate. It's almost like the mind is like this third entity and you're kind of like dragging it along. You're like, no, I'm not going to listen to you. You're going to get training. Now sit down over here and meditate. And if even if you do that for five minutes or 10 minutes and something happens that breaks up your meditation, then that's okay. Just come back to it another time. But if the mind has this perfect expectation of what it wants in a meditation session, then all those conditions are going to very rarely exist. So you've got to train the mind to pursue or walk on this path and take this good, wholesome practice and training of meditation, regardless of what's going on, because there's never going to be these perfect conditions for you. So if you meditate sometimes in the room alone at nighttime, it's perfectly quiet and nobody's around. Okay, great. But those conditions are impermanent. They're not going to permanently exist. So if in the morning there's more people around and there's more activity going on, that's okay. Still go meditate. And your meditation maybe won't be as deep or feel as profound as it did in the evening when you were alone, but that's okay. Because if you never do it in that situation where there are people around, then the mind's never going to get comfortable with it. So it might take a week or two or three for the mind to get comfortable meditating when there are people around. 
But if you never do it, then it's never going to get comfortable to do that. So just go ahead and stick with it, regardless of what's going on around you. Just stay committed to the practice. And what I typically tell people is once you get started, even after two or three weeks or a month, if you've been meditating in the same environment, the mind's going to want to latch onto that. So I usually tell people to move anyway and kind of like move to other locations, like to your living room or your outside area or to a temple or a park or somewhere else. So it's actually good that you don't have the same conditions to meditate all the time because then the mind won't try to grab onto it and latch onto it. So mix it up a bit and actually go into different environments and meditate and train the mind. But if you have one particular environment that you feel most comfortable in, you know, you can get your practice established there, but don't allow it to latch onto that and, and actually try to introduce other variables of different sound, different lighting, different place, different locations. All of this is actually really helpful for the mind to train it to understand impermanence. This is one of the biggest things that the unenlightened mind doesn't understand which is things are constantly changing. The unenlightened mind wants things to stay permanent. It doesn't like all this constant change. So the only way to train the mind to be comfortable with this constant change is to introduce constant change into the mind, even in your meditation practice. So this will be very, very helpful for you that as you meditate in different environments with different variables, it will train the mind to just get comfortable with it and it has no other choice. And this is where it kind of is nice to think of the mind almost like this third entity where you're kind of setting this up and like, hey, I know you're not gonna like this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And it becomes fun and almost challenging, like almost like a scavenger hunt, seeing how you can test the mind today. Okay, Max would like to ask a live question on Zoom, so I'm going to go ahead and unmute him now. Okay, who's this guy, Max? <laughs> that's me yeah oh, oh max Thanks, i've let you no, go I, already I I, I I i let you go <laughs> yeah. um, so i was wondering if you might be able to help me unpack uh, a series of thoughts i'm having here so i understand that whilst the path is the path for everybody how that is applied for each person is going to vary and from moment to moment from person to person and what is a wise decision for one person will be different than it would be for another person. I get that. And yet, at the, uh, on the other hand, I also understand that an enlightened being will be content and peaceful in any and all situations. Now, on the surface, those two facts seem like they might be in conflict. And I know that they're not. I'm just trying to get my head around how they're not. Mm -hmm. Is it that through making good, wise decisions for oneself, one would never put themselves in a situation. So the results of their decisions would be they, they'd never be in a situation that they found difficult. Or is it that they will just go through life in any way and always be content no matter what situation they're in? And even if they make efforts to not put themselves, say, in harmful situations, they may still find themselves in those situations and still maintain their contentness of mind. I know mm -hmm. that's quite a big question, but um, I thought it was best to ask it live. 
Yeah, you might need to ask some follow-ups if I don't hit all the points that you're looking for. So first of all, this path, this eightfold path of right view all the way through to right concentration, right? Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the path, and when you learn that path, you apply it in your daily life, and you see that this is a nice, solid approach, or some people might say philosophy, or a better way of life to kind of look at how to navigate these natural laws of existence, particularly gamma, because this natural law of gamma is essentially explained through the Eightfold Path. The Buddha is basically laying out saying, hey, this is how to improve the results that you make in your life. So for example, like right view, which is all about accepting responsibility for your emotions and your feelings and knowing that you cause your own discontent mind, right? The Four Noble Truths is the Four Noble Truths and everybody needs to understand these really deeply so that they understand and establish right view that it's not my mother or my father or my boyfriend or girlfriend or child that's causing me to be angry. I'm actually causing it myself. So establishing right view, it needs to happen and really needs to soak in. But then when you get into things like right intention or right speech, for example, this is a good one. So right speech, it's the same general guidance using those five factors of well-spoken speech of speaking at the right time, what you say is true, you speak gently, you speak beneficially with a mind of loving kindness without blame. So this is kind of like the general guidance and everybody who's on this path should aspire to learn that and then bring their speech up closer and closer to that. So it's the same general guidance of the path, which is right speech, but how you choose to practice it or how I choose or Chris or James or Sunday or Judith, any of the people who choose to use certain words, our word choices in the way that we speak is going to be unique to us and to our personality. But in that speech, you should see these same five factors that if someone's moving towards enlightenment, you should be able to see, even though their word choices are different, their personality is different, their approach, their tone, their tempo, everything else about their way that they speak is going to be different and unique for that individual person. But you'll see these same five factors show up in that person's speech. For example, if there's two enlightened beings that are already have attained enlightenment or two people on this path that are progressing towards enlightenment. So there's that with speech. There's that with like livelihood. Like these are the five wrong livelihoods that would cause harm in the world. So everybody's going to have a different livelihood and choose to do that in their own unique way. Right. So there's those aspects of the path that look very different. So in any given situation, the Buddha didn't say, you know, for example, if your boyfriend cheats on you, do this. You know, if your girlfriend cheats on you, do that. Right. He didn't give these singular permanent answers because there's always 10 million answers that you might come to as an individual. But what he did is he gave you this general guidance that then you choose for yourself of what's the best decision in this situation. So in one situation, the answer might be, well, sit down, talk, have a discussion, try to understand it, you know, try to come to terms with it or whatever. 
Another situation might be, I'm going to leave this person. I, I, I can't accept this infidelity or this unfaithfulness. There's a lack of trust and you know, there's been a lot of lying and I'm not able to continue with this person. So there's all different ways to approach any given problem. But having an understanding of this eightfold path and what it takes to get to enlightenment, one can then choose for themselves which one out of those 10 million right answers might you pick. So that's where this eightfold path becomes general guidance in your life but you ultimately apply this to your life in your own unique way and what works best for you. In terms of things that come up in our life, there's going to be challenges. Even when you're enlightened, you're going to have challenges in your life. But the word that you used that I'm sure you used on purpose, which is difficulties. An enlightened being isn't going to look at things as being difficult. They might look at it as like, wow, this is challenging. Let me figure out how to apply some wisdom here and make this better. But they're not going to look at it as, oh, this is just so difficult. Why does it have to be so difficult? You know, this is kind of like a mind that is just kind of like moaning and complaining, where an enlightened being is going to always look for the positive side of things. And they might see it as a challenge. And they understand that this challenge is impermanent. It's not permanent. And they understand that it's only a matter of applying the right amount of wisdom that they will be able to overcome this challenge because an enlightened being has already overcome the challenge. Or if we want to go back to difficulty or misery of this unenlightened mind, they've already overcome that through years of applying good, wholesome teachings and practices to acquire wisdom and overcome the challenges of the unenlightened mind. So if you can overcome that challenge and eliminate the discontentedness in the mind, any other challenge in this external world, it's just a challenge. It's just about a matter of finding the right wisdom. And when you see a particular challenge and you try to make a few decisions, you make those few decisions, you see how it affects this challenge in a negative way or a positive way. And if it affects it in a negative way, then you look at that and understand that. And then you apply some more decisions to improve it. Or if it improved it, you made some good decisions, but it just didn't solve the challenge 100%. Then you apply some more decisions to increase the likelihood of overcoming this challenge. And because you've already done that so many times in your life on this path, using this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, once you're enlightened, any other challenge that comes up in life, you've already overcome and surpassed so many other challenges that you know that any challenge that comes up in life, it's just a matter of time and the appropriate amount of wisdom with really good, wholesome decisions that will allow you to overcome this. So you don't fret about any particular challenge that you might observe or you might encounter because you know any challenge that comes about, it's all because of your own decision-making that landed you in this challenge. And it's because of your own decision-making that you can overcome this challenge as well. And it's just a matter of time and the appropriate amount of wisdom that you apply to move this situation forward and improve it for your life. Okay, thanks then, David. So this reminds me of something you said a while ago, which was that the mind is functioning more optimally by pursuing this path 
on one hand. On the other hand, it's also making better decisions in daily life. One thing that stuck with me was that you said, it's actually the same thing. <laughs> so the mind functioning more optimally is a mind that's making better decisions in daily life mm-hmm. and vice versa. And so... And it's, those, just, and it's those better decisions that you're making all the way through from the time when you start the path all the way through, you're making better and better decisions to meditate regularly, to attend Dhamma talks, to implement those teachings, to read the book, to get advice and guidance from your teacher. You're making all these good, wholesome decisions, which leads to more and more peacefulness of mind. So it's those good, wholesome decisions that lead you to this enlightened mental state where you're experiencing enlightenment. So once you're in that enlightened mental state, any other challenge that comes about you know that it's just a matter of applying more and more wisdom over time to overcome those challenges. But those challenges are challenges that you've chosen to pursue or chosen to partake in. Nothing just happens to you by happen chance. It's all things that you've selectively decided to pursue because by the time you're enlightened, you've already cleaned up all the unwholesomeness of your life. So there's nothing unwholesome coming back to you. Everything that you encounter is all about your personal choice of what it is you choose to get involved in. Right. So is as much about the decisions we make in daily life as it is about what we're doing with our mind moment to moment. Yes, because let's just say you get on this path now and you let's just say you mastered in three months, which is impossible. But let's just say you mastered it in three months and you've gotten to the point where you fully understand this path in three months. Well, you still got problems around you that were created when you weren't practicing this path three months ago. There's people that you were talking harshly to. There are family members that you haven't had a good relationship with. There's all these other things at your work and other places in your relationships that even if you fully understand this path in such a short time and you're practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, you still got to clean up all of this stuff because you made this mess from before. This is your gamma coming back to you. So if you were aggressive and angry and hostile with your children or your life partner or coworkers, even though you've mastered this path in three months, which again is impossible, but if you did, those people and your children, your life partners, your coworkers are still going to be talking harshly to you. So it's not just because you've got on this path and you've mastered it that wa-boom, everyone's just going to instantly start talking to you wonderfully. So you still need to face all of those challenges, but you do it through this wisdom. You know that when your life partner becomes aggressive with you or hostile or angry, if you really understand this path really well, you know that the wrong thing to do here would to be angry and hostile back. And you know any kind of anger and hostility that's coming from them, it's your gamma based on things that you've done to them in the past. And you've just got to work through this and overcome this challenge. Or if your children, for example, you've been hostile or aggressive with them, or you've treated them unkind, or you haven't imparted wisdom to them about how to conduct themselves with a good mindset and good wholesome decisions. Well, as you're progressing on this path and improving your mind, your children are still going to be making unwise decisions based on the things that you taught them before you knew this path. So now you have to either choose to clean that up or let go of it entirely. And that's part of the path is kind of cleaning up 
the things that you did previously. And that's when you ultimately get to experience complete enlightenment is not only when you train your mind, but also when you make decisions around you to kind of clean all this up. And in some cases, the individuals themselves might choose to clean it up and you might be able to help them. In other situations, it might be that you need to end the relationship and move on. Because in the enlightened mental state, while there'll be occasional strangers here and there that will just be hostile and angry and aggressive with you for no reason whatsoever, the life that you create around the people that you're with, those people, you won't experience this unkindness and this impoliteness and this disrespect because if you've been practicing this path for a very long period of time then all the people around you are going to start observing that you're kind you're polite you're friendly you're respectful and over many years of doing that more and more of the relationships that are around you they're going to also be the same way with you And this is one of the reasons why the mind is so peaceful is because people aren't being aggressive and hostile back to you. But even if they were, your mind is so well protected through having trained it to be unaffected by other speech and actions that as people are unkind to you, it just doesn't bother you at all. You just see it for what it is, which is their own lack of control of their own mind and their own practice. So people will still be unkind to you or disrespectful, but it won't affect your mind because you'll just see it for what it is, which is their practice. Thank you. Okay, so it's making more sense now. Perhaps I can ask one more follow-up here. So how does this apply in the case of personal ability and preference as opposed to harm and non-harm? So for example, okay, you've got two enlightened people one of them makes a really good doctor and the other one makes a really good teacher. If they swap roles, they'd probably figure out that they'd be better off going back to their original role. You know, they wouldn't be discontent, but they would learn from the situations and, and go back. It's not like they're each becoming blank personalities. You know, there's still going to be personality there. You know, one's going to be tall, the other one's going to be short. And they're going to have unique abilities that lend themselves to different things. So as part of this path, the one who is well geared up to be a doctor is going to make decisions that lead themselves in that direction. They might then try teaching, realize it's not for them, and then go back to being a doctor. Have I understood that right? Yeah, there's all those kind of scenarios that can happen because enlightenment isn't about knowing everything and anything in the world. Like Gautama Buddha, he was known to be the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. He understood this path very well, and he could teach people how to attain enlightenment very, very well. But if it came to something like farming, he probably didn't know how to do that because he grew up in the royal palace. Or if it came to running a business, he probably didn't know how to do that because he never had run a business before, right? So an enlightened person or an enlightened being isn't gonna know everything. So on this path, if there's a doctor and a teacher who's a doctor and a teacher as they progress on this path, not only are they gaining the wisdom of this path, how to train the mind to eliminate discontent feelings, but they're also gaining the wisdom about how to be a doctor and how to be a teacher. And they're applying the teachings in those various roles as they progress on this path. 
So if they both arrive to enlightenment at the same time, that doctor is going to be a very, very good doctor without any discontentedness, without any selfishness, without any craving, anger, ignorance, the self or the ego. And the teacher is going to be the same way. So as they fulfill their various roles in society, if they choose to switch from a doctor to a teacher and then back, that's just their occupation and how they choose to sustain their life. But when they do that, they're going to do it all based on these teachings that they're going to ensure that they probably gradually move away from being a doctor, that they make sure that there's people there that can take care of the role that they fulfilled. They're going to gradually move into being a teacher and try to help and support people through their teaching. And then if they realize that that's not for them, they probably gradually move out of that and gradually back into being a doctor rather than kind of like what we do in the unenlightened state where we're in a job, something happens, we get in an argument, we don't like our boss and we just quit because we want to like inflict some harm on the boss in that workplace because in that unenlightened state, we feel like they made us angry they did something wrong, therefore we're going to punish them by leaving and quitting the job and going somewhere else. Where an enlightened being, first of all, isn't going to get angry, isn't going to try to punish people, isn't going to try to cause harm to people. So if they try to transition from like a doctor to a teacher, they're going to make sure that everything's taken care of in that job before they transition over to this new job. And they're going to make sure they're prepared to do it. And enlightened people are very, very successful at what they do. They don't really embark on something unless they know they're going to be successful. In the unenlightened state, we tend to pursue our craving, desire, attachment, right? And we just have these longing and strong eagerness. And we'll come up with an idea and either we'll have fear or we'll have shyness and we'll like won't even try and we'll just kick that idea to the side. Or if we do try, we will try. But because it's all coming out of craving, desire, attachment, we'll tend to put a whole lot of resources behind it and push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. And we ultimately kind of burn out. And then six months or three years down the road, we're like, ah, I don't like this anymore. I'm kind of bored of this job because it was craving that was creating the desire to go pursue this job. And that person got a whole lot of happiness and excitement out of it for a temporary period of time. Once that excitement and that happiness is burned off, then we say, oh, this job's boring to me. I'm going to go try something else. So an unenlightened person will tend to jump around and jump around and not really have a whole lot of direction in their life and not really understand how to put resources behind something to make it really, really successful. Where an enlightened being, if they pursue something, it's not being pursued out of craving, anger, ignorance, the self or the ego. It's not because they're searching for some happy feelings or some excitement or some elation. They're doing it because they know they have some real value to add. And this is a way that they can really help humanity being a doctor or being a teacher. And they will pursue things out of interest to help others rather than pleasant feelings for themselves. So if this doctor chooses to be a teacher, they're doing that because they see the value in them now taking the lessons they learned from their medical field and now offering it through a learning experience. 
So when they choose to do that, they're going to make sure that it's a good decision and that they're moving their resources and what they need through experience to get there and actually accomplish what it is that they're looking to accomplish. So I don't know for certain, but I wouldn't expect somebody to go from being a doctor to a teacher back to a doctor, although it can happen because, you know, maybe there's a need for it. And maybe the person after they teach for a while realizes that there's a real need for doctors and that what draws them back to being a doctor. But typically enlightened people are going to be very, very successful at what they do because they're not pursuing it for happiness, excitement, elation. They're not pursuing it out of selfish reasons or the ego. They're not fearful of failure. And they're going to put a whole lot of thought into actively progressing towards this new goal in this new career, for example. And they're going to make sure that they're setting it up in a way that's going to be successful. Thanks, David. That's been a really helpful series of questions there. So mm-hmm. I'll uh, let someone else jump in now. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a question coming in from Facebook now. It's from Michael. He'd like to know, David, what's your advice on dealing with other people's ego? Do you have to deal with someone else's ego? If somebody else has ego, that's their ego. You don't necessarily have to deal with it. As long as it's not affecting you, as long as you don't allow it to affect you, that's where you would like to be. But in terms of their ego, you don't really have to do anything at all because you can't do anything at all. It's their ego. It's their practice. They're not going to let go of that ego unless they choose to do so unless they choose to work on it and dissolve it and even see it as a problem. A lot of times people don't even see the ego as a problem. So there's really nothing you have to do in order to deal with it. What you've got to do is just ensure that you don't allow someone else's ego to affect your mind. Because if you've got ego and someone else has got ego, then when their ego comes out, your ego is going to want to be on top of them. So you've got to just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter who you're around, whether it's somebody with ego or without ego. Um, So there's really nothing you have to do specifically because you can't do anything. That person has to address it themselves. I think that you probably have felt that people that do have ego, you probably don't necessarily enjoy being around it. So you always have a choice You know, if say like your boss has a lot of ego, you chose to take on that boss or if your coworkers have ego, you know, you're choosing to be in that job. But, you know, where you can make the choice and you choose not to be around people that have ego, that can be helpful. But you also have to ensure that you're not doing that out of aversion where you're pushing people away with hatred or anger or ill will or out of frustration and you're erecting this wall. But at the same time, the world is full of ego. So if you were only ever looking to be around people that don't have ego, your list would be pretty short. So the only real answer is to kind of allow your mind to be trained where it's not affected by other people's ego. And don't feel that there's any requirement for you to do something in that situation other than to maintain your own peacefulness and your own contentedness. All right, David, I had a quick question. We had a great meditation session today. And um, as we um, cultivate our meditation practice, we may experience positive feelings through that. And 
I was wondering if you have any advice on um, how not to attach to the actual meditation practice and the positive feelings that can come with that. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, we talked on Sunday and we've talked at other times about these three feelings of discontentedness, the painful feelings, the pleasant feelings, and the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is what the unenlightened mind is going to experience. And the whole goal of this practice is to eliminate this discontentedness of mind. So even something like meditation, you can have a really good meditation session. And when you're done, you're just like, oh, wow, I feel amazing. And if you feel that way and you judge that and you determine that and you experience those pleasant feelings, then what the tendency for the mind to do is it's going to have that expectation or that want that craving, desire, attachment, that longing with a strong eagerness to replicate that or have more of that in a future session. So the way that I describe it is I describe it as being out in the rain naked and being unaffected by the rain, whether it's raining, whether it's sunshine, whether the wind's blowing, you just have to train the mind to be completely unaffected by any kind of feeling that arises and maintain that middle. So if you have a meditation session that you feel a lot of shifting, a lot of deep meditation, and wow, like that was quite deep, you gotta just cut that feeling off at the end of meditation. Just like you let go of all the feelings during meditation, if any feeling after meditation arises, like, oh wow, that was so wonderful, that felt so great, you have to cut that off too and just let it go and just be like, all right, it is what it is. I had that experience and it's done and it's over. That doesn't mean you're going to experience that next time too. So you can't hold on. You can't have this longing, strong eagerness for the same experience every time you meditate. You might have two, three, four months of really deep, profound meditation where you feel a lot of things shifting and moving and you feel like you're getting a lot of stillness in the mind. But then based on what's going on in your life or in the mind, you might have a few weeks or months where things seem very busy. And people tell me, you know, I'm not getting as much benefit as I did before. And now they kind of feel down on themselves that they're not getting as much benefit. But that's the problem with the human mind is it's craving this permanence. It experienced these four months of really deep meditation. And now the mind expected that to be permanent instead of realizing that meditation itself is impermanent. So during that period where things are a little bit more scattered or a little bit chattery in the mind, you just have to recognize it for what it is, which is impermanence, and don't allow the mind to crave what you had in the past, is just stay committed to the practice and just do it regardless of what you're experiencing afterwards. If you're only doing meditation because you're craving those pleasant feelings, then as soon as you're not experiencing those pleasant feelings anymore, you may decide to give up. And this can be very detrimental to your practice. So rather than try to compare or measure your meditation practice, rather than try to judge whether this was a good one or a bad one, rather than try to crave this permanent deep meditation that you have each time, just see it for what it is. It's just meditation. I'm training the mind, focus on the breath. It is what it is. If I'm standing out in the middle of the street naked and it's raining, I'm fine with that. 
If it's sunshine, I'm fine with that. If the wind's blowing, I'm fine with that. Whatever happens, happens. And just stay dedicated to this life practice of just consistent meditation every single day. But then, of course, recognize that there's going to be some days here and there where you don't meditate. And that's part of the impermanent nature of meditation as well. But what will tend to happen is people will oftentimes feel guilty if they miss a day or if they miss a particular session or if one session isn't as good as another session. So eliminate all this comparing, measuring, judging, holding on to these pleasant feelings. When you're done meditating, just I'm done. I'm just done. And just whatever it was, it was just it's done. And just walk away from it. And it is what it is. And don't try to judge whether it was good or bad. This is problematic for the mind. Thank you, David. That's very useful as we um, cultivate our meditation practice. I had um, one other question. I was wondering, um, in the United States, we're um, approaching the Thanksgiving holiday. And I was wondering, what is the role of gratitude in, the, in our practice? Yeah. So, you know, Thanksgiving in America, it's uh, it's a time to be thankful, appreciative, having gratitude typically. And this is very, very helpful for the mind. Because if we walked around ungrateful or unappreciative, this isn't what enlightenment is about. So we should be appreciative of the things that people do for us and the things that exist in the world and have gratitude because that is part of this path. You know, politeness, gratitude, appreciation, friendliness, respect, these are all words that you don't really see show up on the Eightfold Path. You don't really even see them too much in other parts of the Buddhist teachings. You can kind of surmise this. You can kind of extrapolate and kind of see that it's kind of generally in there. And if you're in a Buddhist society like I live here in Chiang Mai, you can see it everywhere. You can see the politeness, the kindness, the friendliness and the respect, as well as this gratitude, appreciation that people have for each other. But you don't really see people talking about that much in the Buddhist world. So you do need to cultivate that. And I think it really starts with yourself is having gratitude and appreciation for yourself because a lot of times what happens is people really disparage themselves. There's like this negative self-talk in the mind that we will tend to disparage ourselves in the unenlightened state, which can be kind of like self-hindering. It can hinder the progress on this path because just as you're trying to make a couple steps forward, there's like this negative voice that's kind of telling you, you know, you're doing it wrong, that's not correct, or, oh, you're always messing up, you can't even remember the Eightfold Path, and there's all these negative things. And if you listen to that voice, then you're never going to get past it. You're never going to get that voice out of the, your mind. You've got to almost think of it as a third entity and just be like, get away, you know, I'm not interested in that, just cut it off. So having this gratitude or this appreciation for yourself is really important and one of the things that you get really good at on this path is being comfortable with spending time alone with yourself. And I think that COVID times is really good for that. Holidays, a lot of times families come together, but it's good to find some alone time. And just being comfortable being alone with your own thoughts, which I think a lot of times in America, 
I was taught that this isn't good, right? Like when we were in college or when we were kids growing up, if you went to the mall, you always had to go with your friends because if you just walked around the mall by yourself, people thought you were a loser, for example. Or if you went to the, the dining hall in college by yourself to eat alone, then people thought that like you didn't have any friends and you're a loser, you're a loner, right? So I never really subscribed to any of that stuff, although I, I knew those things because that's what people were sharing. But I still went to the mall by myself. I still went to the dining hall by myself. And here in Thailand, if you go to the mall, about 50% of the people are actually alone. Because if you can never spend time alone and be comfortable in your own skin and have that appreciation and gratitude and be comfortable with your own thoughts while you're alone, how could you ever be comfortable when somebody else is around you? So the more you learn and you train the mind to be comfortable when you're alone, then when there's other people around, it's just kind of like, okay, well, that's kind of a bonus. Okay, I have somebody to talk to and I'll spend time talking to them. So this is why the Buddha talks a lot about seclusion. This is why a lot of the ordained practitioners will spend a lot of time alone. This is why some ordained practitioners will go off into the forest, spend time in the forest alone or in the cave alone. There's a really well-known ordained female who lived in a cave for 12 years by herself. And, you know, you get comfortable in those kind of situations. Not that you have to go to that extreme, but if you spend time alone having gratitude and appreciation for yourself, just go to the mall by yourself. Go to the movies by yourself. Go to the park and walk around by yourself. You don't have to do that all the time, but you should incorporate that into your week. And if you fall in love with yourself, not a conceited love, but what I taught in chapter 14 as true love, where you have a genuine interest in your own well-being, in your own peacefulness, and part of that well-being and that peacefulness, that true love that you have for yourself is being alone and being comfortable with your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own personality, and kind of coming into your own. You can really appreciate and have gratitude for yourself. Therefore, you're going to have it for other people as well. It's very difficult to cultivate appreciation and gratitude for others if you don't have it for yourself. It's very difficult to cultivate love and kindness and politeness and respect for others if you don't have it for yourself. So all of this practice, it all starts with you in your own mind. So I encourage people to cultivate this gratitude and appreciation for others, but you really got to start with yourself, just like all these other good, wholesome teachings. They really start with yourself. So I encourage you guys to spend time alone going to the park, going to the movies, going to the library, go do things alone and spend time with yourself. And that's where you can really observe the mind and you can see how the mind pulls and it wants to be with other people. That's a craving, desire, attachment. It's not comfortable being alone. You know, I had to train my mind to be comfortable to be alone. You know, train the mind to be comfortable as the thoughts come up in the mind, and as you have various ideas that arise in the mind. Get comfortable looking at that, even if they're dark and you're not comfortable, you know, right away. It may take several months or years for you to get comfortable with that. But part of this path 
of meditating and learning the teachings, applying them in their life. Part of it is learning to spend time alone and having that gratitude and appreciation for yourself and others as well. Thank you, David. That's really helpful. It seems that we have no more questions at this time. Okay. Well, I'll just end by saying thank you all for joining. I appreciate James deciding to be a moderator for the first time and Max giving him a little bit of training. So I was kind of smiling. I see the influence of uh, Max and James here. So uh, appreciate that you guys are working together to try to have some other people that can do the moderation because Max is impermanent, James is impermanent. So it's good to kind of build in some redundancy, right? So I really appreciate that you guys are learning and practicing this path. And we're going to continue in this group learning program and on this journey, on this path to enlightenment, as we are each Sunday covering a chapter in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, which you can download for free. Or if you would like a printed or Kindle version, those are online as well. And then on Wednesdays, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or Buddhist chanting. So next Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. And then on Saturdays, we're starting to kind of carve out that day for our upcoming program in January, which is the words of the Buddha Pali Canon and English study group, where we're going to be using these books of the Buddhas that are actually his words to study his words directly. The way that those are going to start off on January 9th is we're going to be meditating first and then going into the actual study of the actual book, which the whole program is laid out online. And you can get the link for that and actually register at no cost. And it's offered openly and freely as all these classes are. So on Saturdays between now and then, We're going to be doing meditation, kind of like what we did today, basically, and then taking any questions just to kind of gradually ease into this third day of online classes that you guys are welcome to join if you like. And if any of these that you're not able to attend live, you've always got the YouTube channel, Facebook or the podcast to listen to these later. So if you have any questions during the week, you're welcome to post those into the Facebook group or reach out to me privately through personal message, or you can also schedule a personal discussion where we can talk by audio or video, and I can help you throughout the program as well, wherever you are, because all the students are at different points of their learning and their growth. A lot of students will schedule these weekly or every two weeks or once a a month. So it's really up to you. I just like to ensure that you know all these different options that you have available to you between the book, audiobook, videos, podcasts, quizzes, online classes three times a week. You have personal guidance where you can schedule with me and learn through video or audio. I have classes here in Chiang Mai and retreats at some point when Thailand kind of opens back up if you guys decide to join here in Thailand or If you're local here in Chiang Mai or in Thailand and you'd like to come join, we have classes here as well. The only thing that's really hindering you from progressing on this path is your own dedication and commitment, your own decision to start learning and progressing because all these resources are offered for you 
openly and freely. It's just a matter of you choosing to reach out and engage with these resources. And if you don't even know where to start, that might be the first discussion that you have with me is not even sure where to start. Or your discussion might be, I've been on this path for 10, 20 years, and I'm not quite sure where I need to go next. I need some help or guidance. So feel free to reach out and get some help. That's what I'm here for, to help you and guide you on this path. So thank you very much for learning, for deciding to join today. And I'll see you either on Saturday, Sunday, or next Wednesday. Have a very wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.